0: Welcome to New Books in World Affairs. This is your host Christian Peterson and today I have the good fortune of speaking with Henry Now about his new book, Conservative Internationalism, Armed Diplomacy Under Jefferson, Polk, Truman and Reagan, which is put out by Princeton University Press. Henry Now, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christian. It's good to be here. Henry, uh, to begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, where you studied, and how you came up through uh, academia, so to speak. Sure.
1: Well, I began actually uh, as a engineering student, uh, I grew up, of course, I, I went to high school in the Sputnik era, and so we were all encouraged to think seriously about science and technology, so I did my undergraduate work at MIT, uh, initially in chemical engineering, eventually I wound up in something called physics, uh, science, economics, and politics, uh, which is about as far as you could go in the direction of social sciences at MIT at the time, but I had realized that I wanted to move uh, into more of the uh, social science and history uh, arena, so I went then into the service for a couple of years. I was an ROTC cadet and uh, after that experience I went back to graduate school. I did my master's and Ph.D. work at uh, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, um, studied with uh, Robert Osgood who uh, is of course one of the all-time uh, you know great minds in thinking and writing about American foreign policy. Uh, And then had my my first teaching job at Williams College. Eventually came here to George Washington University. I have been in government twice uh, during my teaching career. I've I've always my teaching position has always been at GW. But I went into the State Department in uh, 1975 to 1977 as a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow and served as a special assistant to the undersecretary for Economic Affairs uh, in the State Department. At that time, a gentleman called Chuck Robinson. This was, of course, the last two years of the Kissinger era in the State Department. Uh, and then I went back into government uh, in 1981, January of 1981. Uh, as a uh, senior staff member of the National Security Council uh, in the Reagan administration, charged then with uh, responsibility for international economic affairs and particularly the economic summits at that time, the G7 summits. I then returned to the university in the fall of 1983, and uh, you know continued my teaching and writing and uh, uh, publication career in, in the uh, academic world.
0: It's an interesting career. So you've had the experience of teaching at a a research university and the small liberal arts kind of academic environment then. Um, What was it like to teach at Williams College?
1: This, uh, it was a terrific uh, teaching experience. That is uh, a wonderful group of uh, very smart, uh, often, not all to get, not always, but often highly motivated. Um, and so it was a real joy to teach. Now, these are my early years of teaching, so it consumed a lot of my energy and, and, and thinking at the time, uh, but I really enjoyed that. I, I must say I was a little less enamored with the uh, environment at Williams and with the faculty. It was a, sure. a highly, uh, very liberal school, and uh, I was looking, and it was a little bit isolated, uh, uh, being up there in the northwestern corner of uh, Massachusetts. Uh, so my wife and I, you know, were ready to move to a more urbanized uh, area where uh, I could also indulge my interest in in policy, since I was always sure. interested in the policy scene.
0: And how much did you at all, did you run into Richard Pipes when you worked... Uh... So the Reagan. Yes, no, I
1: did. I I, I knew Richard. uh, Not you know. I I didn't work with him intensely because he was uh, working on the Soviet. Uh, side of things and uh, of course I was working on sort of the free market world economy side of things. But we did cross paths uh, from time to time on uh, questions of economic sanctions uh, against the Soviet Union which were significant in the uh, first uh, Reagan term uh, especially the uh, restraints that we imposed on the export of oil and gas equipment and technology trying to um, at least not assist the development of the Soviet gas pipeline. That they were um, uh, uh, putting into place to sell gas to uh, Western Europe. Um, so, but but you know, one of the interesting things about those, the early years on that uh, first term Reagan uh, National Security Council is that there was an, there was it the the effort was integral. That is, there was a real effort to pull together all of the pieces of national policy and international policy into a grand strategy that's now by the way evident in the all the national security decision studies and memoranda that yeah. were done during this period from 1981 to 1983 and those who have looked at those documents now carefully uh, have recognized that they laid out in a sense the plan, the policies in all kinds of areas—economic, political, propaganda, intelligence, uh, strategic—they laid out. Military, of course, they laid out the plans that Reagan essentially implemented uh, uh, in his second term um, after the, you know, economy was revived uh, significantly in '83 and '84. So it's a. It's a study in sort of the application of grand strategy to policymaking, a pretty successful one, I would argue. Yeah,
0: that's it's it's interesting. Um, I I mean, I I met Richard Pipes uh, at a conference that he came when I was at Ohio University getting my Ph.D. and almost before. He said anything to me. I Someone asked him about Soviet revisionist historians and he, out of the blue, just got up and said, Soviet revisionist historians, I invite their scorn. And I'm like, whoa, this, who, <laughs> who, who is this? I mean, I, I knew who he was, yeah. obviously, from the scholarship. But yeah. to see, you know, right. he's an older man, just get up, seem like animated by the, you know, the debates about Soviet intentions. En- enormous energy, intellectual uh, firepower. <laughs> obviously,
1: um, he had a story to tell. He had an yeah. opinion to, uh, you know, uh, express and um, you know I, I don't I, I think you, you have to look I mean, work I, mean, I always say to friends just uh, criticize what he said or what he you know what his ideas were and uh, and sort of try to separate out the ad hominem uh, you True. know uh, uh, comments which are all too frequent unfortunately yeah. especially sometimes when they're you, you know when it, when it's directed at conservatives I mean I, I think of some people like norm, norm Chomsky who's, who's just as opinionated but on the left, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, but but the charge is seldom made against
0: him that 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 somehow rather he's he's uh, <laughs> the epitome know, of uh, evil. Off the reservation, now. <laughs> yes. So I think that's a, that's a good segue to go into your your new book, uh, Conservative Internationalism. Uh, mm-hmm. How did you come to write this work? <laughs>
1: Well, I, um, as I say in the uh, acknowledgments of the book, I, it's, kind of, it's been rumbling around in my head from almost the beginning of my uh, you know, uh, introduction into the field of international studies. Uh, when I came to Washington in the mid-60s as a uh, graduate student, um, I was just struck by the fact that I always came across the word liberal and liberal internationalism. I never came across the word conservative. Um, I, did, I did, of course, find realists in the city, sometimes a few nationalists, uh and often they were thought of as conservatives um but there was no conservative internationalism someone who genuinely believes in trying to improve the world that we can move beyond stability the status quo anarchy and we can and we can make the world a better place largely through uh the expansion of prosperity and the spread of democracy um there wasn't a uh tradition of thinking and of writing in that in that vein so you know for thirty forty years i worked on other problems. I started working on technological issues in U.S. foreign policy, drawing on my engineering or my science background. Then I worked on economics uh, and U.S. foreign policy. And then finally after the Cold War, sort of began to work on grand strategy and and American foreign policy. So after I finished a book in uh, 2002 uh, in which I wrestled with my realist training uh, and tried to inject a, the whole notion of ideas, identity, uh, into a realist framework, that book was called At, At Home Abroad, Identity Empowered American Foreign Policy. Uh, you know, I, I, I was ready to kind of do the study that would uh, try to define a conservative internationalist tradition in the field of foreign policy. And and in, in the book, I have a, a very simple matrix on page 27 in which I uh, illustrate these traditions in terms of their relative emphasis on the uh, uh, on the goals of foreign policy, namely security versus spreading democracy, and their relative emphasis on the means of foreign policy, force versus diplomacy. And that matrix shows very quickly that three standard traditions. Nationalism, realism, liberal internationalism—they pop right out, and they have a defined, a well-defined body of literature. And, you know, even institutes in Washington and elsewhere that represent that point of view. But then there's that fourth quadrant, uh, which is conservative internationalism, which is almost empty, almost empty except for you know something that, uh, called neoconservatism uh, that came along in the last three or four decades. And as I say in the book, well, the New were kind of looking for this alternative. They were refugees from the liberal internationalist tradition, like, for example, Gene Kirkpatrick, and they were also refugees from the realist position, like Condi Rice. They were looking for something that would combine more integrally force and the desire to improve the international system by increasing the number of democratic regimes. but. They, they, don't, they didn't define that tradition. That tradition has been left undefined, and I w- I'm hoping that my book will in some measure begin a process of defining that tradition and nurturing that tradition and understanding that tradition because it's clearly, uh, as that matrix shows, an important element of the debate about American foreign policy and should not be excluded
0: in future debates. Yeah, your analysis raises a number of thought-provoking questions, and uh, related to the idea of conservative internationalism. Um, for our listeners, I think it would make sense to—you don't have to go into all the details. You—you you have a, uh, you know, uh, a number of good charts and uh, matrices uh, or matrices to show uh, the reader some of the ideas that you develop. But on its most basic level, what is conservative internationalism?
1: Well, it is a, a it's an approach to the to thinking about and to implementing American foreign policy that combines an interest in improving the world through an increase in the number of democratic regimes on the assumption that democracies live in peace with one another, and so on the strength of the democratic peace argument, combines that goal with a determination to arm. Your diplomacy, recognizing that you're going to get pushback from the despotic or non-democratic countries in the world, and they, of course, by nature, use force to maintain themselves in power at home, and are more likely to be willing to use force in relationships with foreign countries. So if you're going to negotiate with these countries, if you're going to deal with these countries effectively, and have the goal of trying to expand incrementally and gradually, but nevertheless to expand the borders of freedom in the world, uh, you're going to have to cope with countries that use force and so you must therefore have a diplomacy that recognizes the value of uh, the use of force in negotiations, not for the purpose of disrupting negotiations, but for the purpose of actually making negotiations uh, succeed. Uh, and so that um, uh, idea, that idea of Conservative, meaning that you've got to back up your diplomacy with force, and internationalism, which means that you are interested in trying to eventually move beyond anarchy and the status quo and simply living and coexisting with Uh, despotic countries uh, indefinitely, Uh, that constitutes uh, the core of conservative internationalism. And it differs uh, very specifically from the other three major traditions, Um, from liberal internationalism in the sense that liberal internationalists do not want to arm their diplomacy until the very end of negotiations, That is, only if the negotiations fail. So liberal internationalists are less focused on backing up their diplomacy with force unless the diplomacy at the end fails. Realists and nationalists, of course, do not want to pursue uh, armed diplomacy or the balance of power for any other purpose than defense and security of a specific country. They do not think you can do much to change the character of the international system uh, by increasing the number of democratic countries. And they doubt that democracy is potentially applicable in many countries in the world. So they're more content to live indefinitely in a world in which you balance power, divide up spheres of influence um, with other great powers, often non-democratic powers.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you for explaining it that way. Um, I, I think another thing that I liked about the the opening of your book is the way that you play around with uh, what conservative and liberal actually means in contemporary times. Um, right. How you how you you bring this about? Um, I mean, the, the one part of your book where you you talked about you had a, a, a I believe some you were delivering a paper and somebody asked you a question right. about aren't conservatives just about conserving essentially kind of the status quo? Right. Um, I mean, how do you – I mean, just for our listeners, how would you uh, differentiate uh, between conservative and liberal? Well,
1: I I spent some time on that, even though many of my colleagues said that has to do with domestic affairs and doesn't belong in a book on foreign policy. But in fact, it does, because we have had, since the beginning of this republic, two different schools of thought about the nature of freedom in America, and therefore – by extrapolation, uh, a difference in view about the uh, prospects of freedom in the world at large. I mean, we have had, um, we, in, in a sense, all Americans are liberals, that is, they're classical liberals. We all believe in the Declaration, and in, uh, which is freedom for all. Uh, all men are created equal, uh, and we believe in uh, the Constitution, which provides for uh, basic civil rights, and basic equality. Now we didn't you know we started out with a lot of a lot of equality among white males, but not very much equality elsewhere. But over time, we've expanded that idea. So we're all fundamentally committed to individual freedom and equality. All right? Unlike traditional, by the way, conservatism in Europe, which was associated with the monarchy and with the church and with the forces that ultimately stood against the emancipation of the individual. So America was very unique in that respect. But there evolved two schools of thought about the nature of that freedom, one was the Jeffersonian school, uh, which is today the Republican school, you could argue, of domestic affairs, uh, a school that believes in limited central government, believes in a robust civil society, especially marketplace, and believes in uh, a uh, uh, in a um, uh, world in which individuals take as much responsibility as possible for themselves, all right, before they start trying to Take responsibility for others. In fact, Jefferson made this point in in a classical way in his first inaugural address. He said, some people say that man is incapable of self-government. He said, well, how then is he capable of governing others? So the point being, if you can't govern yourself, you have no business governing others. That's a limited government view of American freedom that has been cherished by conservatives. Uh, And I think Jefferson was the first great conservative. By the way, he was the first organizer of Tea Parties in America. He literally started the party system in America. Now, the other view is the Hamiltonian view, uh, also sometimes associated with John Adams. And that was a view uh, about a stronger central government, uh, about uh, more central direction of the marketplace, um, more intervention by the government in the marketplace, um, more sort of responsibility on the part of government for individual society and for the evolution of uh, of, of sort of the individual culture um, and that point of view has been represented over the years uh, by the Whig for example uh, party when it existed uh, by the uh, Democratic Party um, in the uh, uh, by the Republican Party I should say in the context of the Civil War uh, when Lincoln brought national power to bear against the problem with Slavery. And then since the uh, Second World War, m- represented more by the Democratic Party and by what I call in the book social liberals as opposed to classical liberals. Now once you, I, I, I try to define the very specific differences between the classical liberal and the social liberal, between the conservative and the liberal, by the way, most people don't disagree with uh, the distinctions that I make in the book, uh, namely that uh, classical liberals believe more in limited government, uh, social liberals believe more in activist government, and um, uh, classical liberals believe more in the need to bring morality and religion and virtue to bear in public policy making social liberals rely more on expertise and more on sort of the use of reason to try to develop solutions to problems uh, maybe even ultimately without having to rely upon any sort of moral or political point of view now those views I think are um, deeply embedded in our country as I said it existed since the 1790s I think both views are essential to a healthy and a balanced democracy uh, and so I applaud in that first chapter the fact that we now have a conservative movement in America, our so-called red state America that is, probably, that is on an equal par really with the social liberal America or with the blue state America and that's reflected now in the fact that The parties rotate pretty regularly back and forth in power. The Republicans just taking over again the Congress here in uh, November of this year. Um, We have to remember that for 60 years, from 1933 to 1995, uh, the Republicans had held the House of Representatives for four years and the Senate for eight years. The Democrats otherwise dominated during that entire 60-year period. We had a one-party system. In America. So I applaud to some extent the partisanship that exists because we now have healthy, competitive, conservative, and liberal parties. And that matters not just in domestic affairs, it also matters in foreign affairs because conservatives are going to be more inclined to also oppose activist government in the international system, that is, oppose lots of international institutions and pooling and consolidating and even surrendering national authority to these institutions. They're going to be very skeptical of that. And they're going to also be more skeptical than liberals about the possibility that simply the uh, evolution of science and technology and the progress of economics will resolve all of the political issues for us. And bring about democracy, uh, for example, in the future without our having to engage the moral struggle with uh, non-democracy.
0: Yeah, I want to I want to return to that. that you raised some interesting points there when we at near the end of the interview, when you go over, when we uh, uh, we deal with kind of your recommendations for uh, U.S. foreign mm-hmm. policy for U.S. foreign policymakers moving forward. Um, right. I think it's a good time to kind of go to transition from you, you lay out the ideas very well and use it as a way to move your, move your book forward, but as a way to set up your case studies of, you know, conservative internationalism and in action right. under, uh, Jefferson, Polk, Truman and Reagan. Uh, chapter three deals with what you call, you know, the recent swings or the pendulum in us foreign policy from 1991 right. to the present. I was wondering if you could uh, briefly summarize, uh, what's gone on. In, as far as foreign policymaking in this country since 1991, um, Uh, Particularly, I'm interested in your evaluation of George W. Bush
1: right. Well, in chapter 2 I try to lay out clearly the four traditions and then what I start to show in chapter 3 is how the absence of the fourth tradition that I'm trying to establish namely as conservative internationalists how the absence of that tradition has led to cycling in American foreign policy between the liberal internationalists on the one hand and then the nationalists and the realists on the other hand so what you see um, because these being the dominant traditions, they've been kind of engaged in a tug-of-war with one another. And what you see in the president's um, following now, the end of the Cold War, is you see a swing back and forth between these alternatives. And the reason the cycle occurs is because liberal internationalism encourages us to be engaged in spreading democracy, but it misleads us into thinking that we're not going to have to apply... Any significant resources in order to achieve that, especially military resources. So we go into the world, as for example Bill Clinton did, all right, uh, after the end of the Cold War, with this idea of democratic enlargement and economic engagement. We're going to spread democracy and we're going to spread prosperity. And you notice that in that slogan, which was of course Clinton's foreign policy, there's no mention of military all right, defense or protection. Uh, the idea is it's gonna be easy History is on our side. We're going to bring all these countries, uh, you know, around to democracy and to prosperity, and the world is going to live in peace thereafter. Well, I mean, we were justified in having confidence in democracy and 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 the capitalist economic system after the, it's the significant victory of those elements uh, in the Cold War, but we were misled into thinking that there wasn't going to be some pushback at some point from the uh, continuing non-democratic forces, and of course eventually we got that. We got that in terms of all the ethnic conflicts that broke out in Yugoslavia and then in the Balkans. We got that eventually in the pushback that came from a more authoritarian Russia, and China, Uh, and so um, pretty quickly Clinton had to swing back from liberal internationalism uh, to a more sort of realistic approach. where he turned to NATO to try to help resolve the Bosnian conflict. He then, of course, conducted an actual war of bombing in the case of Kosovo under NATO auspices. He, of course, launched the first enlargement of NATO. He came back to the military side of policy by virtue of events that pushed him in that direction. When George W. Bush came... Into power, uh, and some of this cycling, by the way, is caused by the politics. Obviously, a Republican president comes along, you've got to disagree with the foreign policy of the previous Democratic president. So George W. Bush came along and really reacted against sort of the liberal internationalism of Bill Clinton. Uh, by opposing what he called his mother, Teresa, foreign policy, his desire to intervene in problems all over the world and uh, send diplomatic missions and efforts to try to resolve those issues, Haiti and other places. Um, And he argued that we should have a more humble foreign policy. We should, in other words, be more limited in our thinking about what we can achieve in the world. He was actually advocating a, if not realist, maybe even nationalist orientation. That is, we should simply defend ourselves, take care of ourselves in this hemisphere. Other countries will take care of themselves. Our military forces should not be used for nation-building, he said, in the context of the... You know, campaign uh, in 2000, uh, and we should concentrate on you know, doing things here at home. He was going to be the compassionate conservative who had a domestic agenda. He is what I call in the book a reform conservative, that is, uh, conservatives who believe more than any other group of conservatives that you can achieve some things by central government intervention. Now, 9-11 changed all that. He actually reacted to 9-11, I argue in exactly the way you would expect a nationalist to react think of Andrew Jackson yeah the preeminent nationalist I mean George Bush reacted exactly the way Andrew Jackson would have reacted he said bring him on by golly <laughs> you tread on me and we'll take you on and we'll crush you I was making the and same so point he...
0: in class today about Jackson I'm sorry I was talking about him and used like yeah. the same language go ahead because I'm sorry yeah, no, indeed. So, so I mean, he does. He goes out and he crushes them. And remember, mission accomplished.
1: Now, maybe he, like a good nationalist, assumes that the problem's done. We can come home. Well, of course, the problem wasn't done. It was only half done. We had succeeded in the military side, but now we had to succeed on the diplomatic side. I mean, and if you want to be critical of George W. Bush, I think I'm, there are too many people who are too critical of George W. Bush, but you could criticize him on the follow-up that is in Iraq and Afghanistan. It wasn't the need to go into those countries to deal with the threat. We certainly know there was a threat in the case of Afghanistan. Uh, because they attacked us on 9-11 or terrorists who were trained in Afghanistan attacked us. Uh, and you could argue at the time, as did many people in a majority of Congress and, and elsewhere, agree that there was a threat in Iraq in terms of the possibility of the spread of weapons of mass destruction. It turned out to be based on bad intelligence, but you can't, you know, seems to be fault the decision made on the basis of knowledge at the time. So you can, uh, uh, I think, still argue that George W. Bush was correct in both of those interventions but I think where he uh, can be criticized is in terms of the follow-up he was not as he didn't react as quickly as his father did in 1991 to shifting from the use of force to the use of diplomacy I mean he didn't launch a Middle East peace initiative until ni- until 2007 four years after the invasion by that time we had kind of uh, you know we had kind of squandered our military leverage his father, Use the military leverage gained by the first Persian Gulf War to immediately convene a Madrid conference that initially produced indirectly the Oslo Accords, the most uh, significant progress we've made uh, since World War II on the Arab-Israeli dispute. Now that Oslo Accords didn't hold, but at the time that was a big step forward. So. Bush didn't make that shift uh quickly enough. Now one consequence was that of course Obama comes along and he says in effect that now you know Bush's problem was he thought he could solve every problem at the barrel of a gun, with the barrel of a gun. Um, I'm going to do diplomacy and show you that I can raise the standing of America and the world and I can improve all of these problems around the world simply by focusing on diplomacy. Well, you know, Obama, of course, has now gradually realized, or he's in the process still, I think, of gradually realizing that what do you do when your partners don't negotiate? What do you do when your partners fight back with military force? Like the Russians have done in Crimea and Ukraine, or like Iran is doing in Syria and Lebanon, um, you know, are you just going to uh, 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 give up and 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 let them have their way, or are you going to have to push back? So Obama is now very late in his term, much like Clinton, is beginning to realize, you know, I've got to use some force here. He's now essentially restarted the war in Iraq and possibly started a new war in Syria. This is the man, by the way, who came into office determined by diplomacy alone, not only to avoid wars, but to end wars. Uh, And so he swung the pendulum, it seems to me, way too far over to the diplomacy side. Um, it's now swinging back, uh, you know, slowly, yeah. but uh, in the next uh, four or five years, possibly, especially if we continue to have some setbacks, uh, as, for example, in the case of the spread of the Islamic State now in Syria and Iraq. I mean, they are now setting up training camps in that part of the Middle East to train terrorists uh, to potentially attack us in Europe, exactly what the Taliban government did in Afghanistan in the years leading up to 2001 and to 9-11. So does this mean that we are potentially vulnerable to another attack? It did pay well. And as that reality, I think, it reemerges, then we'll see another swing back, another swing back towards uh, a recognition that um, you sometimes have to rely on force in order to back up your diplomacy, or else you're going to be uh, simply um, defeated uh, by your uh, adversaries. Uh, and, and and so there's been th- that chapter three lays out this this kind of cycling. Now what I'm suggesting is that there's a possibility that conservative internationalism, which I then go on to illustrate in the case of four you know American presidents, that it could help us to find a middle ground between these. The, 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 the end points of our cycle—that is, we might be able to find conservative internationalism defines a way to stay in the world, all right, with, with still with the objective of trying to transform the world, but now disciplining that objective very carefully, all right, by setting priorities and by uh, uh, showing a willingness to compromise but it also realizes from the very beginning that you're going to have to arm your diplomacy with force because that's what the other side is going to do. And if you want them to take negotiations seriously, you're going to have to persuade them that they can't achieve their their objectives by force outside the negotiations. And so the purpose of force of armed diplomacy is to make the negotiations succeed and not simply to let the adversary drag out those negotiations, all right? Because you're now committed not to use force until the negotiations fail. If you're following the liberal internationalist tradition, uh, and you cannot, um, uh, and, and and you're unable then to achieve any success inside the negotiations. Iran, for example, will negotiate with you forever until they achieve their objectives by force. In uh, lebanon in syria and potentially by acquiring a threshold nuclear capability uh, and then by the time your it's apparent that the negotiations have failed um, you're going to have to use a lot more force if you're going to stop them or more likely you're just going to accept their uh their advantage
0: yeah that's one of the arguments you make in the book that a little force in you know in the present uh, often and often unrecognized you argue um uh, often it, it prevents larger uses of force in the future, and a lot of times that's not recognized because of the way history is written and how uh, people in the past kind of look at it. But uh,
1: yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, we, th- th- there's a whole area there that is understudied, and You know, my field, that is cases where it may have been, had we used a little bit of force early, we'd avoided, uh, you know, catastrophic use of force later. I mean, the classic example of that, of course, is the 1930s, where had we confronted Hitler's advances sooner, we'd have avoided a world war in which 50 million people died, or we'd at least had a smaller world war. Now I don't, you know, we don't really worry. I mean, we don't really uh, examine that possibility uh, the way we should. For example, uh, Roosevelt gets uh, Franklin Roosevelt gets a pretty, um, you know, clean pass on his leadership in the 1930s. Um, when I'm thinking he was in office for eight years, and then we get we get smacked at Pearl Harbor and then lose 500,000 people. Uh, soldiers in the context of World War II. What was he doing for eight years when he was in office while this threat was building in Europe? Well, you know, I don't know why we've never really kind of uh, taken, you know, asked that hard question about Roosevelt's uh, leadership because had he been more uh, uh, responsive to these changes that were taking place in Europe, had he been more of an American Churchill In this period, we may have led the world and the American people. I understand they were isolationists at the time. The presidents are supposed to lead, not just follow, and he may well have uh, brought about some uh, smaller uses of force that would have headed off the, you know, Armageddon. Now, another example, by the way, which has never been studied, and it blows my mind that nobody's ever asked this question: Had we been successful in the use of small force in the Bay of Pigs operation? Operation in early 1961, you know when uh, the CIA was assisting or was supposed to assist um, Cuban forces to overthrow the regime of Fidel Castro, had we applied a little bit of air power to that operation, which we didn't do, but had that operation succeeded, we might have avoided the Cuban Missile Crisis, the closest the world has ever come to nuclear Armageddon. Why hasn't anybody studied that? Now, it's, it's it's a it's a tough thing to do, obviously, because when you use force early, you also risk a slippery slope. And so people are always saying, oh, no, 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 don't use force. You know, that's just going to antagonize your adversary. It's just going to antagonize Hitler. Uh, you know, uh, it's just going to antagonize Tehran. Um, you know, yeah. keep telling him force is, you know, uh, a, a last resort, but, but, but keep negotiating. Um, and yet when you do that, and the other side – doesn't refrain from the use of force, you run the risk that they will achieve their objectives outside the negotiations while the negotiations are still going on. And now you're confronted with an adversary that has taken most of Europe, in the case of Hitler, or an adversary like the Islamic State, who has now dominated the opposition groups uh, in Syria. All right, Opposition groups that we could have assisted potentially three years ago, and might have built up a moderate alternative to the Islamic State. Now we have to use a lot more force bombing the Islamic State, and eventually we're going to have to put some boots on the ground, whether they're Kurdish boots on the ground or uh, eventually American troops on the ground. It's the only way you're going to eventually secure the territory and make sure that they aren't uh, setting up training camps to train terrorists to attack us or to attack Europe.
0: Yeah, you raise some interesting points there, and you, you read the, the literature in any number of subjects. It seems to be at times when you talk about the use of force, it's always seen, I mean, maybe not to this level, but it's seen as warmongering. At the end of the day, people yes. are reasonable, that they can uh, negotiations yes. can work. Essentially, human beings are, if, if for all the differences, are essentially capable of uniting on some issues and working things out. I, I see that kind of argument yeah. uh, argument a lot.
1: All the time yeah and it seems perfectly reasonable and it's hard to refute so i think one of the one of the points that needs to be made which is perhaps something on which both sides can agree and that is that we should at least never negotiate from a position of weakness that is absolutely critical to diplomacy is making sure that your defense posture is strong now, uh, this was, of course, a point that Ronald Reagan insisted upon. He was never opposed to negotiations. You know, it turns out, we know now, I knew it when I served under him, that he always wanted to negotiate with the Soviet Union, but he was not going to negotiate for weakness. And his view was that if we're strong enough, you know, we'll probably never have to use that force. They'll recognize it, and they'll understand that they can't beat us outside the negotiations, that they have to now work with us. Inside the negotiations, so for example, today I think we, you know, one possibility is uh, to rally the American public around the idea that we've got to—we can't let defense keep dwindling away the way we have the last four, five, six, or eight, six years or so, especially after the sequester, where we're cutting defense just arbitrarily across the board. That we've got to restore the military muscle, not for the purpose initially of any. specific intervention, we're not gonna use it in, you know, Syria or any other place. We simply want to have the best, strongest military capability as the basis for our negotiations. That's at least one thing I think that you could get the American people to support. All right, on the assumption, and I think it's a very good assumption, that the stronger America's strength has never caused a war. All right, and it's going to you know, have the best chance of preventing us from ever having to use that force. Now, there are two other sort of uses of force that become more controversial and at the moment at least the American public is not willing to support it. I mean, one is to push back on the ground when you're negotiating an adversary uh, tries to achieve its objectives outside the negotiations. All right, that's what Iran is trying to achieve right now in Damascus and in support of the Syrian uh, Assad government. It's what Iran is trying to uh, achieve by uh, supporting Hezbollah and now essentially, you know, um, holding the the the. Um, Lever of power in Lebanon, um, and it's what, of course, they're trying to achieve through the acquisition of a threshold of nuclear capability in the confrontation with with Israel. Now, uh, there you need to have. I mean, I think if we're going to uh, uh, meet our basic interests in this area, which is to prevent them from training terrorists who can attack us, uh, you're going to have to use some small force, and the earlier you do it, the better. And you have to again make this argument and convince the American people that that you know if we had done this four years ago, we would not be facing the Islamic State probably. And today, we've got to do it uh, unless we're going to face maybe uh, an entire Iraq nation that is under the influence of this uh, jihadist uh, group known as the Islamic State. Um, so that's a tougher uh, sell, especially given the mood uh, that the American people are in. Uh, but we ought to make it, and we ought to make it on the grounds that once we achieve that military leverage, once we are succeed in taking territory back from the Islamic State, we don't intend to stay for 10, 20 years and build democracy. We intend to put a government, a little bit better government in place uh, in those countries and get out. Be ready, maybe to go back in three, four, or five years later, but not stay for these long periods. All right, which we've done now in Vietnam, in Iraq, and Afghanistan, and in every one of those cases, after spending 10, 12 years, we're leaving those countries with governments that are no stronger than they were after two or three years. So we should have been out of there after two or three years. And that gives the American people some sense of the exit strategy, all right, for these interventions. So you go in, you take the territory back from the Islamic State, but then you pull out very quickly. You put that Syrian opposition group in power. Yes, they're going to be weak. Yes, there's a chance that they may fall apart, Uh, but you'll be back offshore, out of the area, um, and you can go back in. You'll, you'll be able three years later to convince the American we have, people we have to go back in if there's a further problem. If you stay indefinitely, you're going to eventually exhaust uh, not only the will of the American people, but you, 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 you exhaust uh, the lives of an unnecessary number of uh, American military uh, personnel.
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you make a number of important points there. Um, but to, if you, if you want to get, uh, people to buy into conservative internationalism, uh, At some level, you have to demonstrate its utility, and that's what I think you tried to do by the case studies, by showing how conservative internationalism has served U.S. interests well in the past, and you use uh, Thomas Jefferson, James K. Polk, Truman, and Reagan. Um, I was wondering if we could just, uh, you know, uh, you don't have to go into all the details about them, but what makes each of these presidents a conservative internationalist and what they did successfully by following the tenets of that approach?
1: Well, generally speaking, Jefferson has been considered a liberal internationalist in the sense that he believed in a new kind of diplomacy that would be pursued by republics like the United States that would eventually transcend the warlike anarchy of uh, you know of the world of monarchs. Um, and presumably, he wanted to achieve that new diplomacy without a lot of emphasis on force, kind of the classic definition of liberal internationalism. Well, my treatment of him suggests that he actually used a lot more force than people gave him credit for. He was indeed focused on, as an internationalist, he was focused on making the world a better place by spreading republicanism, with a little R, if he could. That's why he supported the French Revolution uh, until, of course, Napoleon came along and a dictator took over. Uh, but he applied a lot more force than people give him credit for in his thinking about how you would spread uh, republicanism in the world. I mean, he went to war with the Barbary states in the Mediterranean and spent four years uh, fighting them, ultimately successfully, uh, with with almost the entire American Navy. I mean, like one or two ships were all that were left behind. He, he sent the rest of the naval force that we had at the time, maybe 12, 14 uh, significant ships, he sent them to the Mediterranean to fight that war. Now, he did so because he understood that we had to protect our commerce and we had to demonstrate our ability to protect ourselves. We were a new country. We had relied upon British protection up to that point in the Mediterranean, and we had to be willing to draw the sword, as he said, or to show the rod to the Barbary pirates." So if, if that isn't use of force, I don't know what it is. Um, secondly, he was more clever in applying uh, the use of force to securing the Louisiana Purchase than I think a lot of historians um, give him credit for. In other words, he did manipulate in the minds of the evidence, at least to me, suggests that he manipulated in the minds of Napoleon. In the mind of Napoleon and Talleyrand, he manipulated the possibility of a U.S.-British alliance. All right, which in, in the end wasn't the sole factor. <clears throat> but I think you can show that it was, in fact, the tra- that broke the camel's back and ultimately led Napoleon, who, who did not want to get into another war with both Britain and America in the New World while he was engaged in such a war in the old war, it was the straw that broke the camel's back and caused Napoleon to decide to sell, not just New Orleans and and western Florida, which is all that Jefferson asked for initially, but to sell the entire Louisiana Purchase. He also, by the way, made Napoleon aware of the fact that American settlers were steadily moving towards New Orleans, and that time was on our side, not on the side of the French you know, administration in New Orleans. So he was, I think, much more subtle in his use of force than people uh, believe, and therefore I think qualifies as a conservative internationalist. I mean, very quickly, uh, Polk is one of the most underrated presidents, I think, in the history of the country, uh, an extraordinarily ambitious man who, was all, who, in a sense, was an accidental president, but came into office, had four major objectives, two domestic, two international. He accomplished them all in four years years, and the two big international ones was to secure the Oregon Territory and to secure the Southwest Territories and finish the expansion of the country to the Pacific. And the thing about his diplomacy is that he never made a diplomatic initiative without backing it up with a military threat, and he never took a military initiative without backing it up with a diplomatic off-ramp for his adversary. He does this repeatedly in the context of the war with Mexico. You know, there's a lot of controversy about that war and some people will never forgive him uh, for, you Mm -hmm. know, having, uh, for being involved in that war. But a careful, I think, um, look at his policy shows how he was ready. He he had very limited objectives to begin with uh, in terms of the territory he wanted. And then he was very careful always in trying to match his military leverage with a diplomatic solution. And when he finally got that diplomatic solution, he compromised. We controlled all of Mexico in February of 1848, and there were a lot of people in Congress who argued that he should keep it, and we should train the, the that we should build a nation, the democratic nation in Mexico. He was smart enough to know: look, I got the original territory I wanted. Uh, you know, if I stay here for, for, for a long period of time in Mexico, I'm going to bleed to death. I better take this agreement and get out of here. He, in six months, he had the last American forces out of Mexico, and of course, the agreement, uh, history, history shown was a magnificent, you know, sort of accomplishment. uh, uh so, so, uh, that is his sort of, um, qualifications, I think, as conservative internationals. Truman and Reagan, they were the bookends of the Cold War. Truman was really responsible for laying out the policy of containment, which said that, look, we are confronting a a nation here that uh, is not only communist, but atheist. That was very important to Truman, by the way. He was very conservative in terms of his, you know, kind of perspective on the world, which was infused by religious thinking. That wasn't true for FDR. So Truman was more quickly sort of, he uh, more quickly came to the view that, you know, it's going to be tough to deal with these guys uh, through negotiations unless we are, um, unless we re-are unless we are just as strong as they are. Well, by 1947-48, of course, we had completely disarmed. We had demobilized. But the Soviets had not. And when, of course, then Berlin occurred, when the Berlin blockade occurred, that was the moment when Truman said, you know what, we're going to have to rebuild our defenses before we can negotiate successfully uh, with the Soviet Union. And that was the beginning of the Cold War, but the beginning of an effort to try to establish a more balanced um, uh, set, you know, balanced relationship of arms. took, By the way, twenty years for that balance to emerge. All right, but once it did, then the two countries, the two superpowers, were in fact more self-confident and able to negotiate with one another. We got the détente period of the nineteen early nineteen seventies. So Truman, I think, um, unlike Roosevelt, probably realized sooner that it was going to take armed diplomacy in order to. Contain the Soviet Union and not simply a jaw-jaw diplomacy, uh, as. Perhaps FDR had hoped uh, through the United Nations. Reagan, of course, revived that Truman understanding of what the Cold War was all about, that it was a contest between good and evil. It was a contest between two ways of life, one democratic and one dictatorial. And, of course, uh, Reagan also believed that the only way you could negotiate effectively with the Soviet Union was to be as strong, if not stronger, than the Soviet Union. So he laid down the gauntlet to the Soviets and said, look, if you want an arms race, uh, come ahead, we'll take you on, you can't win. Uh, and he basically scared the Soviets into negotiations. I think that's one way to interpret... What happened in the mid-1980s? Gorbachev came along in part because the Soviets were so afraid of what was happening in the United States where our economy was suddenly exploding uh, and our military was taking off and of course there was this prospect of, uh, nurtured by the information revolution, there was this prospect of the Strategic Defense Initiative and this just overpowered the Soviets. I mean Gorbachev tells his colleagues already in the fall of 1985 he says, listen, the last thing we can afford is an arms race and an economics race With the United States will lose. Well, there was the payoff of Ronald Reagan's buildup. And what was the result of it? Well, the result of it was the end of the Cold War that, that spread democracy. I mean, whether we wanted or they wanted this whole silly argument about who won the Cold War. The fact is, after the war ended, democracy spread to some 63 countries. In the course of the 1990s and of course to all of the countries of Europe so that Europe was now whole and free I mean that was an extraordinary sort of consequence I think of a, a foreign policy that seeks to spread freedom as possible and does so with a disciplined and a use of force uh, and a willingness to compromise and so those four presidents are at least examples there may be others, and in future work I hope to examine some other American presidents to see if, if they might qualify. But these four certainly seem to me to make a pretty good prima facie case that oh, we've had this tradition in our quiver uh, for quite a while.
0: What, what has been your rea- or been the reaction that you as far as you can tell about your some of these arguments that you make about the conservative internationalist credentials of uh, I mean what, what stick what stuck out to me when I read this was uh when you when you when you write about Polk about kind of using a counterfactual uh, to explain right. why the mexican American war in many ways served the United States interests well um, when the Civil War took place and possibly preempting right. you use i think you use the term preempt possible dismemberment uh, by European powers right. And Reagan's, I mean, this is, I mean, at, uh, I was at the Schaefer Conference uh, uh, last June, and the, the Reagan thesis was in the air, people debating Reagan's role in the end of the Cold War, and everybody was, you know, really down on the idea that Reagan played an important role into it. Um, right. So I'm just curious what, what you've kind of feedback you've got on those, well, those types mean, of arguments. Well, I mean, to be
1: quite honest with you, I, I, I worry about um, the, um, you know, whether or not, uh, this argument that I am making um, will have a big enough imprint on the debate because there is a general desire, or uh, at least from what I observe in the academic world, there's very little study of Reagan's policies. And the argument generally is that Reagan changed his mind somewhere along the way, and then Gorbachev came along and saved him. Um, and I think the record does not a declassified record now, uh, which is reflected in a couple of very uh, good books. One by Martin and Annalise Anderson, called Reagan's Secret War, based entirely on the declassified NSC documents. I mean, it shows a totally different uh, picture of Ronald Reagan. Uh, so, uh, you know, that he understood what he was doing from the very beginning. He had talked about this already before he became a politician. That is, in the early 1960s, he laid out many, much of his thinking about how you would take on the Soviets in an armed race and then how you would be generous and magnanimous to them in negotiations, which is exactly the pattern he followed. Um, and so I think we're just going to have to, I'm, you know, some of us are going to have to keep talking about this and urging people to study the record uh, and to observe the extent to which uh, Reagan and these other presidents that I've looked at were willing to take small risks early in order to avoid much bigger risks later. And they did this by combining a willingness to use force, at least. Accumulate force, as Reagan did in his defense budget, with a willingness to negotiate, that is, to accept a less than perfect solution. Like, for example, the INF agreement, you know, at Reykjavik, they wanted to eliminate all offensive weapons. Well, they didn't get the perfect agreement, but in 87, they were able to agree on the elimination of one type of weapon, the INF weapon. So he would take agreements when he could get them, uh, not trying to solve all problems at once. Um, but understanding that he would get those agreements only when he had, uh, you know, either equivalent or superior military leverage, uh, uh, to that of the Soviet Union. So I'm hoping that the, uh, record can't be avoided, but you know, here's one of the difficulties we face in a liberal academic world that, that is so unbalanced. You don't have many graduate students studying this stuff. Uh, you know, I was out at the Reagan Library in the summer of this past year, and and I'm, I'm told there aren't there's isn't much traffic from. Can you imagine uh, the JFK Library not having graduate students in there studying all the memoirs over and over and over again? So this is a result of the fact that there aren't a lot of conservative faculty who urge their students to explore some of these topics. But my hope is that you, in, in the long run, you can't avoid. The record. Uh, although I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that that one way to avoid the record is 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 just that way. That is, you avoid it. You don't examine it. It just sits there, uh, and all the secondary literature simply echoes and reinforces. Uh, the conventional argument that somehow or other, you know, Reagan realized that his military buildup wasn't serving any useful purpose and he decides to negotiate and thank goodness Gorbachev comes along and uh, that's the end of the Cold War. I mean, this is, this is, we just can't have that one sided a, Um, You know, argument about such an important event as the Cold War. I think it's in the interest of everyone in the Academy, liberal or conservative, to make sure that we've examined the record from every conceivable uh, point of view. Uh, And so that's what I'm advocating. That's what I hope the book can uh, contribute to. uh, And uh, You know, in the end, I do believe in the public. I believe in the university. I like Thomas Jefferson. I believe in (laughs) education. I believe that people can be, uh, you know, influenced by the facts, and they can be uh, best served by a debate that includes all points of view. Uh, And um, we need that sort of debate about the... Uh, reasons for the beginning and end of the Cold War. And we need that kind of a debate about the nature of the world uh, that
0: we face today. Sure. Well, I mean, if it's any consolation to you, uh, Nick, uh, I think uh, December 13th, I'm leaving for a two week trip to California where I'm going to the Hoover Institution and uh, to making a brief stop at the Reagan Library. And hopefully, if uh, and this is going to sound terrible, but hopefully I'm around my sister's. Uh, Going to have supposed to have a baby on December 12th. Uh, so hopefully, oh, I'll, be, wow. I'll be around to see all of that baby and archives uh, on my two week trip to California. Well,
1: that's wonderful. <laughs> no, and, and I, when you're there, uh, be sure you ask too about you know, there's a Hoover Fellowship program that I was able to benefit from, and um, they are obviously interested in people who want to study Reagan. And a lot of the materials are at Hoover, the, the rest of them are down at Sydney Valley. Uh, and so Hoover is one of those institutions that does want to balance this, sure. you know, the examination of this record uh, over, over the next uh, decades.
0: Yeah, I, de- I definitely will. I'm, I mean, I've already started to look into that, but... Uh... I mean, I've taken a lot of your time here today, and I I appreciate it. But uh, in conclusion, I wanted to pick your brain about uh, how the the insights you uh, you take from your study of conservative internationalism. I mean, we've gone over you went over uh, some of it at the beginning of the interview about the threats the United States faces today. Um, In your last chapter, especially, you talk about the problems that the U.S. faces in the future in terms of its allies and jihadism and rogue states and authoritarian governments. What I mean, what, what lessons uh, do you think the United States should really pay attention to in the, in the coming year? Right.
1: Well, as I say uh, in the book and as, in fact, um, conservative internationalism sort of lays out, you start with a pretty realistic assessment of the threat you face. And I think one thing we should realize is that we do not face a threat at this moment in the world that's a, that is equivalent to, what the Soviet, to the threat that the Soviet Union was. All right, we live in a much better world, even with all of its problems, than the world in which we were face to face with the Soviets for 40 years and could have blown up the world at any point in time, as we almost did in 1962. So that's very important. You know, conservatives sometimes um, want to maybe overstate the threat just like liberals sometimes want to understate the threat. I think we need to be very realistic. That threat that we face to date is primarily the most immediate threat we face is the threat of terrorists trying to attack this country. So that means that when terrorists control territory, when terrorist states or terrorist groups like the Islamic State control territory, where they can set up training camps to train terrorists, to strike us—that's a very serious direct threat. So I would argue that that's the immediate threat we have to deal with. It's fundamentally the threat that we face in both Iraq and Syria, and we have to be have to take it seriously. Now. Um, it, 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 uh, taken by itself, that's not a – I don't think the Islamic State is anything. You know, to compare it and, and, and its desire for a caliphate to the Soviet Union is just, I think, uh, hyperbolic. Uh, so, we should take it seriously for for the real threat it is, that is in terms of individual terrorists who might wind up over here and blow up another building or two or even a city uh, and, um, uh, and, and address that threat. Now secondly though, we need to be aware of the possibility that those terrorists can either by accident or by design acquire uh, weapons of mass destruction. This is of course the problem we face in Iraq and it's the problem we face today in Iran and in North Korea. So that problem, namely rogue states and the spread of nuclear weapons and the possibility, even though, you know, this was discredited by the bad intelligence in the case of Iraq, but the possibility that those weapons of mass destruction might fall in the hands of terrorists, that has to be considered. That that magnifies the threat, all right? And in that case, the focus is on Iran. Uh, what worries me at the moment, of course, is that Iran looks like it's going to become a nuclear power and it looks like we're not going to do anything about it. Maybe Israel will at some point, although I think even Israel is maybe past the moment when they could have done something about it militarily. Now, I'm not advocating war against Iran. I'm just saying that we we face a serious problem. If Iran ultimately acquires a threshold nuclear capability, changes the whole dynamics of the relationship with Israel and changes the whole prospects in that part of the world and magnifies the possibility that terrorism uh, could, you know, at some point uh, gain access the same thing is true in Asia. Uh, It's less of an immediate problem, but clearly North Korea, we know, has been a proliferator of nuclear technology in the past. Uh, And to the extent that it has spread that technology to Pakistan and other places, uh, it's a real threat, uh, especially uh, the prospect of that technology falling into the hands of terrorists. So that threat, Uh, of rogue states, if it doesn't become connected to the terrorist threat it's more manageable, if it does become connected to the terrorist threat it is uh, magnified and finally there's a third level of threat and that is the major authoritarian powers of Russia and China, to the extent that they decide, either separately or collaboratively, to exploit the destabilizing effects of these rogue states Iran in the case of Russia, North Korea in the case of China, and decide that somehow or other they want to take advantage of the terrorist threat to undermine the liberal Western order and to push back against the liberal Western order. At some point, we could face a threat uh, from those major authoritarian powers that would be the equivalent of the former Soviet Union. Now, China is the country we need to really watch in this regard because it is – growing very rapidly, it's, it's made that decision to grow as an industrial power. Uh, Russia I worry less about because despite the fact that it's a big country and it has nuclear technology, it's still essentially an oil uh, state, that is a state that's heavily dependent upon resources, has not made some of the basic decisions that China has made to industrialize. Um, but that's a looming possibility that those authoritarian countries, and when you see the world in terms of conservative internationalism, you're always thinking about regime types. Um, it's that combination that could really uh, recreate a kind of Cold War threat. So what do we do? Well, you I know, think it's pretty obvious what we try to do now to deal with that. We've got to be serious about the threats to freedom on the borders of Russia and China, That's why the Ukraine problem is very important. That's why, of course, the future of the Korean Peninsula is a very important problem. I mean, those are critical areas that will determine uh, whether or not Russia and China uh, succeed in pushing authoritarian authoritarianism forward, or whether we'll be able to hold the line and possibly push freedom towards them. Um, And we've got. to um, taking, we've got to have a policy, uh, that towards the Middle East, towards Iran, towards the Islamic State, following towards Israel, uh, that addresses the, uh, the immediate threat and that also works in some man- manner to to stabilize that region. I think in the Middle East, by the way, we should be worried less about freedom, that is, because there's only one free country in the Middle East, and that's uh, Israel. Um, So we don't think of Iraq and Syria and those countries the same way we might have uh, think of Ukraine, which is potentially a free state, or Turkey, or certainly South Korea, uh, but that we think of them uh, largely as states that have to be stabilized. Uh, and we do that uh, through some of the measures that I've already suggested, plus uh, trying to bring local countries into the equation more than we have in the past. And there I give the Obama administration some credit. That is, they've been very concerned about getting the Saudis, for example, and the UAE to step up and assist the bombing effort in the case of the um, campaign against the Islamic State. That's very important, just as Obama was, I think, affected. In getting the British and the French uh, and the Italians to step up in dealing with the intervention in Libya, although I think the intervention in Libya was not an, an essential intervention. You know, whereas, because no, no terrorists were being trained in Libya to, to attack us, they are now being trained in Syria to attack us. So, Syria is a much more important problem. Um, and so, you know, we shouldn't think too hard about about spreading democracy in the Middle East. Uh, we should be thinking more in terms of stabilizing uh, various uh, situations, putting somewhat better governments into place. We clearly have to negotiate eventually some alternative government to Assad. Um, and uh, being in a position to both get in and out quickly in that region. and not to commit forces to stay for 10, 12 years uh, at the costs that we've incurred in the case of Iraq. And keep our eye on the ball where it matters most, uh, namely on these major borders of freedom between free Europe and Russia, on the one hand, and free Asia and China, on the other hand.
0: (sighs) Yeah, I, I see I see where you're going with that. Uh, you uh, make an argument, I think, that runs through the book that, I mean, in, in the coming years that there's perhaps more of a danger from the U.S. disengaging from the world and hoping for the best than actively trying to shape it and, you know, using force if necessary, um, which in my mind raises one of the issues uh, – that you deal with or that you deal with and other scholars have dealt with the issue of American decline. Um, At the end of the day, people have talked about the, you know, from deficits to uh, economic problems, to the paralysis. We were talking earlier about the kind of healthy tension between the two sides in politics. Some people think that America, at times is incapable of solving its problems because of you know congressional gridlock right. and money and politics. I mean at the end of the day do you what do you make of these arguments of American decline and inability to kind of right its ship to you know keep that role of defending the global order
1: well it 's a very important point and and, and is really. Uh, the question for the next uh, generation. Uh, I wrote a book in, by the way, in 1990, uh, published by Oxford University Press, called "The Myth of America's Decline." Uh, that was before, by the way, the end of the Cold War, and it was a response to Paul Kennedy's book, in which he had written, you know, the rise and fall of the great powers, and he had predicted the fall, of course, of the decline of the United States. Um, I predicted the decline of the Soviet Union. Well, I, I think I fared a little better than he did at least over the last. Uh, over the last. Generation. But look, America has been in decline ever since 1945, and it has been a willful decline. That is, we have consciously designed a world, especially an economic world, in which other countries could gain, could become prosperous, and could gain relative power with respect to us. I sometimes wonder if we aren't the first great power in the history of the world that has deliberately done that, deliberately designed a system that is designed to make others wealthy in the hope that they will become friends and maybe ultimately... Democracies. We did that obviously with Germany and Japan, and with Europe and the free countries of Asia. We did it with the um, uh, with the um, uh, uh, newly industrializing countries, uh, Singapore and Malaysia. Now Singapore is not a democracy, but uh, some of these countries that came along, we at least made them wealthy. And in the case of South Korea and Taiwan, we also helped to make them democratic. And now we're doing it with the big monsters, that is China and India. With the big populated countries of the world, we're hoping to make them rich, and we're hoping that in the process they will become stakeholders and friends. Now that's a remarkable uh, you know, strategy on the part of the United States, um, and it means in the long run that we actually want other countries to be as powerful uh, and ourselves to be relatively less powerful. So one of the things we should, in other ways, worked pretty well so far. His work darn well so far we I mean, think of Germany and Japan; they're the core of Europe and Asia core of free Europe and free Asia today and those are the products of this kind of a policy after 1945 I, you know you could be a little more skeptical about whether we're going to have as good turnout in the case of China and India uh, or, or, or Russia where as I say really they haven't decided to, to enter the world capitalist economy yet um, but um, it's extraordinary we should realize that now what it means Means, of course, is that we shouldn't get so upset about numbers, all right, relative decline. That's exactly what we want. What we should be thinking about is how do we sustain the liberal world order with the capitalist economy at its core? How do we sustain that over the next several decades as with partners, as others who have become more powerful now share with us? more of the leadership role, and more of the material costs. Now, the countries that you would look at in this case, obviously would be the countries of the European Union and Japan. So one task for the next generation is to think about how we can slowly move those countries up along beside us, terms of giving them, sharing with them some leadership role and uh, getting them to invest more. Uh, in both the economics and in the, the security of a liberal uh, Western order. Now, that's a tall order, I understand, but um, it, and it won't happen by design, but nevertheless it, it's, it's useful to conceptualize it. It's the equivalent of what happened when the British sort of passed a global leadership role to the United States. That didn't happen, by the way, without friction <laughs> and without a lot of controversy. Uh, we obviously obviously strongly opposed the the British colonial system and, and lots of fights between, you know, Churchill, for example, and FDR during the course of World War II about that very issue. And then, so we'll have some fights with the European Union when this happens and with Japan. It's not going to, as I say, go exactly according to our, um, you know, uh, rule book, but we should, we, should, we should exploit the fact that we have succeeded beyond – the imagination of any former great power in creating a world in which more countries are wealthy and in which more countries are democratic. And now we need to think about how do we live in a world um, with those countries democratically. Uh, It's going to be an interesting challenge for uh, the next generation of strategists uh, to always keep that in the back of our minds uh, because if we're going to sustain this liberal Western order against challenges from countries like uh, China and Russia we're, we're, we're going to have to bring other countries into the, into the loop and by the way that will also I think help to sustain the uh, whole strategy uh, with the American public uh, which is a little tired, obviously, of seeing American forces always taking the brunt yeah. of uh, military actions abroad.
0: Yeah, I hear that. I teach a lot of veterans in my classes, and what you just said is an argument, you know, that they make, at least privately talking to, to,
1: to pull me. pull back, absolutely. That, you're fight its own battles yeah. Japan you know contain China I mean you know I think eventually that we're moving in that direction but whether Europe is ready today to handle Russia on its own I, I kind of doubt and whether we should, we should abandon Japan at this stage or when they're just beginning to kind of develop uh, you know a, a independence to sort of deal with China I, I don't think so I think we should hang in there for another generation but with this objective of slowly passing the baton and moving those countries, you know, uh, closer up uh, to our side. And here's where I say I can find a few things. I don't know what Obama's motivation has been. I think it's, he's, he's done this largely so that he can just withdraw and come home. But he has, you know, brought some of the allies in uh, the Middle East and in Europe uh, into the, you know, front line, so to speak. Uh, now, he didn't sustain it in the case of Libya, and, and it's not clear whether the Saudis, and the UAE are going to provide any boots on the ground, they probably won't. Um, But... should always have that in mind. And by the way, if you're going to ask them to bear the costs, obviously they're going to have to be involved in the leadership. So that's the big trade-off, which, of course, a lot of people in the American policy process are going to resist, especially probably Pentagon strategists who want to kind of dominate the decision-making side, but they want to, of course, then get others to pay for the burden-sharing side. Well, it's not going to work like that over the long run. Right? We're, we're going to have to find ways to you quote, you know, bring these others on board and give them a stake in the leadership as well as the burden-sharing.
0: Well, a lot of what you, what you said, I mean, I, I don't want to take that much more of your time, but you use a term, um, I believe in Chapter 8, called the the importance of a unipolar identity uh, to the world order. And it matters that you know this is a liberal world order as opposed to a liberal order of other countries with other... Uh, with other values, Um, which I think one of the reasons to read this book as well beyond grappling with the arguments is, from my perspective as a historian, it does a good job of kind of entering debates about how historical change takes place, the tensions between ideas and material forces, uh, kind of mixing in theory with historical analysis. And I'm just wondering, as a historian, what has been kind of uh, your general reaction to how polyscientists, you know, have interpreted this book? And kind of, you know, the debates we have between, you know, how to explain change using, you know, history methods or, you know, the infamous yeah. and from, you know, from historians perspective, the, uh, you know, independent variable, so to speak. Uh, yeah.
1: No, I think it's an excellent question, uh, Christian, and it's actually something I'm focused on at the moment uh, with a little paper that I did for the uh, political science convention um, in September and and thinking about further, and that is, um, you know, normally we don't like explanations of events, neither political scientists nor historians like explanations of events that rely too heavily upon the causal role of ideas or ideology, generally they say, oh, you know, you can, well, what do you mean by ideas and how do you measure ideas? You can't measure any of these things. So what do we do? We generally look at things we can measure, which means material resources, that's military and economic power. And so we often analyze things in terms of power. Or we look at institutional rules and relationships and processes, all right, which are also more empirical or more measurable, we, we think, than ideas. <laughs> so most of the time, we come up with explanations, and that's true now about the explanations of the end of the Cold War. I mean, the two dominant explanations I mean, have to do with material constraints and material and institutional constraints. The liberal internationalists nationalists like to think of the causes of the end of the Cold War in terms of the triumph of liberal institutions, that is, the triumph of, uh, you know, detente and Helsinki and the cooperation that was generated, all right, by those processes, eventually leading the two sides to sort of realize that they could work together, solve their problems peacefully, and sort of surmount their uh, military competition right? Um, um, And that's a a favored argument, by the way, obviously, in in our profession at the moment. Uh, But there's a second argument that has, it says, in effect that, look, I mean, what went on here was a material competition, um, and it just So happened that the West used its economic and military resources more effectively. That is, it it was more efficient. Uh, It was able to convert sort of raw power into usable power, and eventually it um, superseded the Soviet Union and and ultimately displaced the Soviet Union. Now, that's a pretty um, hard nosed. Uh, you know, kind of realist uh, 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 explanation, and it's popular among, you know, some historians and some political scientists, but there's hardly any, you know, body who explains the Cold War, the origins and the end of the Cold War in terms of sort of the ideological competition that was going on. It wasn't so much the material competition, because you have to ask the question, what motivated the material competition? Why was it that the West was so much more efficient economically and militarily? Well, it may have had something to do with democracy. It may have had something to do with the way in which they inspired their 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 publics uh, to you know uh, to defend first of all to express and then to defend their freedom. Ultimately, to um, produce material and economic wealth in defense of that freedom, and, and maybe ultimately in the spread of that freedom. Um, People know that the Soviet Union had lost its morale totally by the end of the 1980s, Uh, so it couldn't inspire its people to do anything. So maybe ideas ultimately uh, drove – the material competition and interpreted what was going on in the institutional relationships, that is in the negotiations. So I'm focused on trying uh, to look at uh, our uh, political science literature to see what work has been done on trying to operationalize ideological factors, ideas as causes of events that occur in the world, and maybe not as immediate causes, but as causes over time. And so I I titled this piece that I did for the American Medical Science Association Convention, Ideas Create Constraints, because we normally start with constraints, but we never ask the question where those constraints come from. Who created those constraints? I mean, when the Soviet Union, when that Politburo met in the fall of 1985 and Gorbachev said, hey, uh, we can't uh, compete with the Soviet Union in the United States because we'll lose. What well, was he looking at? He was looking at new constraints that Reagan's ideas had created. Had he been talking to them in 1979, I don't think he would have said that because the world seemed to be going in the Soviets. Direction in 1979, but suddenly your Reagan came along, created, had a different set of ideas, created a set of policies, put in place new constraints, and now the Soviet now those constraints uh, did in fact. Constrain uh, Soviet options. So there isn't a lot of work on this. I mean, a couple of colleagues like John Owen at the University of Virginia, uh, Mark Haas at the Duquesne University, um, Dan Silpot at uh, Notre Dame University. A few people are working on this, trying to uh, you know figure out empirical ways, and they have done so uh, of, uh, of operationalizing ideological factors and showing how they occur before changes take place in either material power or institutional factors. And so in this way, trying to strengthen this strand of thinking, I, I, don't, I wouldn't argue that it's the only way to think about uh, the causality of events uh, in history or in international politics, but it's one way. And oddly enough, we are all liberals in the academic world who believe in critical thinking and who believe in the importance of ideas, and that's why we dedicate our lives to education, and yet we don't study. We don't have a framework for studying how ideas actually move events. We say, oh my gosh, when somebody has ideas that are inconsistent with contemporary events, we say, oh, that person's ideological. Oh, that person is (laughs) kind of off off the charts. He's off the map. That's what they said about Reagan in 1981. No, pay attention to what those ideas are, to what extent they, these leaders are successful in implementing those ideas. You have to obviously translate them into policies. Reagan had to translate his ideas into a defense budget and into an economic program. But look at how that's done. Look at how then the consensus is generated on that. And then look at the impact that those programs, those policies have on material and institutional constraints. Now you've got at least a reasonable framework for assessing the causal uh, um Impact of um, ideas. So we had a lot of work to do in this area in the academic world because, for some reason, even though we all believe in ideas, we don't really systematically study them and their causal effect.
0: Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you raised it. I was going to ask you what your are uh, going to put your future plans are for, for your uh, future projects. Um, but what you said reminded me of how I deal with students. Uh, and I think this is for America in general. And we tend to, at least when I talk to people, they tend to dismiss things and call things crazy when they don't really know what they are. and They don't really study the idea or what animates the idea. Like I a class just a couple of days ago. I was somehow uh, Osama bin Laden came up and somebody said, he's nuts, He's crazy. What a psychopath. And they had really no idea what he argued <laughs> They had no idea what his yeah. ideas actually Were, why he was mad at America right. What he didn't like about American society And foreign policy, It just kind of Made him, I think, or, yeah, I think it was him
1: More comfortable without Dealing yeah. They, they did that, of course, with Reagan, too. Oh, oh, it wasn't his ideas. It was his personality. You know, he just was a likable guy. And, and that's why they people voted for him, etc. Uh, this is really quite, uh, you know, uh, uh, misleading and and, and unfortunate. And, and we need to get away from this idea that when somebody thinks of something or comes up with a set of ideas that do not match <laughs> the existing reality, that we immediately label them ideological. Mm-hmm. Because that's the moment when... For example, Reagan, 1981, Uh, that's the moment when we should be paying attention to their ideas, not dismissing them, because if they succeed in implementing them, then they can actually change the realities, (laughs) and it's a very different way of thinking about the role of ideology than just to dismiss it as sort of out of place. That doesn't conform with what's going on. Oh, he's ideological. Oh, you know, his ideas really don't matter. It's more his personality or
0: uh you know other factors at work yeah when i taught high school for a year uh one of my colleagues could not talk about reagan the first thing he said over and over again was reagan dance. <laughs> like Like yeah. the first yeah. thing he said oh, yeah. i mean he forgot he'd even said it before like he just liked that punchline um yeah it's a quick way and that's
1: you know i mean it's it's a it's a quick way to dismiss uh you know things that you don't know anything about <laughs> and um it's it's unfortunate uh, very unfortunate we we should you know any time people attribute things to um either idiocy or luck or anything like that i always say you know that's kind of the refuge of the last refuge of scoundrels <laughs> you can't true. think of any better explanation than that yeah. don't uh, don't even bother to you know offer an explanation uh,
0: yeah that's true um well i've taken up enough of your time i'd want to thank you again for speaking with me about well
1: i've quote. enjoyed it very much uh you obviously read it I read the book with some care, and I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, let me know if I can be of any uh, further help, and I'll look forward to seeing the podcast at some point.
0: You have been listening to Christian Peterson interview Henry Now on New Books and World Affairs. We hope you join us again in the very near future. Have an excellent day.